0: Wednesday is my strategy day. I have a list of articles to read, a list of books, and I just work through them. Most days, nothing really comes from it. I would say every quarter, I get an interesting idea, and maybe once a year, I get a big idea. But that big idea can transform the business. That's a quote from Ramit Sethi in an article or an interview he did with CNBC in early 2017, and I really liked the idea behind that because when people email me or reach out to me and ask, you know, how do you read as much as you do, or how do you make the connections between X and Y, and I really don't know what to to say to them other than there's really just a, a volume of accumulation, and eventually, once you hit a certain threshold for volume, then you'll start to connect ideas. And Ramit Sethi is pointing out that you don't necessarily uh, need to expect a great idea from everything you read. Sometimes you need to read something and then let it brew. And sometimes you'll need to read something and it doesn't mean anything to you until later after you've done other things and read other things and had other experiences. Does the meaning of that really kick in? And so with that spirit, that not everything you're about to listen to will be gold, but maybe someday one of the things might be, let's get into the notes. One. Let's start with a clip from the Bill Simmons hosted podcast. This episode is with Malcolm Gladwell, and Gladwell is who you're going to hear speak first. I think when you were saying that we always overrate our own players, why wouldn't a team have a general manager at arm's length. In other words, imagine if you had a complete outsider be your GM for that exact reason. So you don't want him, you don't want a GM who's falling in love with any of your players, who's completely, I mean, Belichick is someone who is, who's, he's, he's a very rare figure in that he seems to be able to have emotional distance from his players. Jamie Collins, one day he's the most talented player on the team, the next t- next day he's gone to the Browns, right? Yeah. So he, he but I don't think most people, most of us can do that. But I'm wondering, would, why wouldn't you have like a general manager on another coast, like who's who never sees the players, isn't who has the ability to be completely objective about things like trades? The conversation that Gladwell and Simmons are having is centering around. Uh, some of the work Michael Lewis did and wrote about in his book, The Undoing Project, and specifically they get talking about how uh, Daryl Morey is a general manager with the Houston Rockets, and he he and his staff were evaluating a player, and they were trying to consider whether they should trade this player for uh, a different collection of assets, and one of the assistants there said, well, what if it was reversed? What if we inverted the situation? What if we had the assets and they had the player? Would we still make the deal? And... Lewis, at least, makes the point, or comes across as expressing this as as very clarifying. It really made clear what, uh, what the team valued, and they valued the assets, the collection of assets, more than they valued the player. And Lewis went on to explain how this is the endowment effect. And then here in this episode, Simmons and Gladwell are taking it one step farther and asking, well, if we get attached to things, if we tend to overvalue the things that we have, what if we involved the decision maker who wasn't involved with the thing. What if they were physically separated from us and how would that help uh, make some of our decisions? In a talk at the Santa Fe Institute, Danny Kahneman and Michael Mobison concluded that this is exactly what happens with financial advisors. If you can enroll a financial advisor who's going to act on your behalf, they say that the endowment effect recedes. Loss aversion, another a largely useful psychological tool but that, that sometimes missteps is also something that can be averted if you have an advisor, someone that's removed from a situation. And as I started to think about this, having a removed person that's going to help you make good decisions, we we, we can see it all the time. I I see this at the gym with physical trainers. It's this person knows that they should exercise and uh, but they have a, a trainer that's going to help them exercise. I see this in my own life where I know all of the exercises that I should do to keep myself healthy, but if I can create something that's impartial to it, then I, I'm more open to to trying new exercises or to be more consistent with the schedule. So having an outsider, having someone that's not directly connected to your life, having someone that's not involved in the day-to-day proceedings of your life or your business or your relationships can be really helpful when it comes to making decisions. Two. I recently finished Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, and... I can't remember who suggested this book or where I got the idea to read it from, but thank you if if you're listening and you were the one that suggested it, thank you, because this book was really good. I ended up with uh, three or four full pages of notes in my little field notebook, and the ideas uh, that Meyer was was talking about were so similar to themes that I've seen in other areas. Uh, For example, Meyer got a deep understanding. He wrote, quote, I was trying to combine the best of what I found with something unexpected, end quote. So he, he had this deep understanding of traditional Italian and French and um, Indian dishes because he went to those places. He went there to figure out how those people ate. But then when he came back to New York City, Meyer created uh, something new, something different from what other people were offering because of the way the restaurants were themed or how the service was provided or the price point of the objects. So he had one foot in the old, that is the traditional French style cooking, and one foot in the new as to how it was presented to New Yorkers. Meyer also talked about uh, transaction utility when he wrote, quote, I could tell my travelers that I knew of an amazing family-run place that very few tourists ever found. They love that, end quote. So this is from a time in Meyer's life when he's operating as a tour guide for his father's company. And he would he would tell the people, the Americans and the other international travelers who were coming with him, that, hey, psst, I got this spot. It's off the beaten path. Off the beaten path is such a hook for tourists. I've got this off the beaten path place that no one knows about. You'll really like it. And what he was doing there was he was providing transaction utility to those people. Richard Thaler writes about transaction utility in his book, Misbehaving, and he usually uh, references it as a uh, getting a good deal, paying less than retail, getting 40% off, and he says that people like that as much as they like the actual thing they're buying, and and we can see this all the time when people talk about how much money they save for doing such a thing, or how much less they pay compared to retail price. So, very early on, Meyer was aware that there's a transaction utility that's associated with purchases. Another part that I really liked from Meyer's book was his idea that you have to start in the backwater, or in his case, the dishwasher. He writes, quote, I did those kitchen tasks no one else wanted to do and in which there was no fear that my rudimentary kitchen skills might lead to disaster, end quote. This is very similar to what Kara Swisher said about her early career and Bethany McLean said about her early career. And it's that when you start out, you have to get in the room and Oftentimes, getting in the room means doing the backwater jobs. It means doing things that other people aren't paying attention to. Because even if you screw those things up, it's not a big deal. You're not going to start writing cover articles for the New York Times if you're in journalism. Rather, you need to follow the path of Swisher or McLean. Uh, Swisher ended up writing for the business section, which... Uh, wasn't what we consider the business section today to be and McLean started writing in the personal finance section and then from there she moved to investing and from there she moved on to writing books and collaborating with people and Meyer was the same thing with him starting in the kitchen and doing these really basic things. Learning the basics is important but uh, getting in the room is important too. Another part of the book that I very much enjoyed was Meyer's approach to solving problems. This is what he writes, quote, It was oddly exciting to manufacture challenges and surmount them, End quote. People who frame problems as puzzles or challenges or who, who almost gamify things in their own mind seem to succeed a lot. Maybe people don't necessarily need to do this, but this mindset of puzzles and challenges and growth, and and I can do this if I figure this out, seems to pervade the success of a lot of people. It's part of the work that Carol Dweck writes about Uh, when she talks about the growth mindset. Another book that I'm reading right now is The Marshmallow Test by Walter Mischel. And, And Mischel was the Stanford researcher who did this marshmallow test. It wasn't only marshmallows, but if you've heard of the marshmallow test, you're familiar with Mischel's work. And he notes that children who scored highly on some of these assessments that he gave them had high scores of ownership and optimism and that means that if they failed at a problem they were more likely to own the problem themselves rather than blame it on an external source and they were also optimistic enough to use failure as a learning experience uh, and then try to solve the problem again so what we have here is this is this mindset this belief system this point of view this frame of reference that I can solve this thing. And, and part of the way you can, you can get into that mindset of I can solve this thing, I can figure this out, is to think of it as a challenge, is to think of it as a puzzle that needs put back together. Y- you frame it as something fun and interesting and related to something else that you've had success with. Overall, I very much enjoyed Meyer's book. It was a fast read. It had a lot of information for businesses that need to serve their customers well. Another thing I read this week was the archives of two bloggers, two financial uh, independence bloggers, Mr. Money Mustache and Early Retirement Extreme. These blogs are written by men who retired in their 30s because they were able to save enough money to support what their expense levels were. And Uh, Mr. Money Mustache writes a blog and he says his family lives on about $25,000 a year. Uh, That doesn't include a house payment because they've paid their house off. And Early Retirement Extreme is written by Jacob Fish. And he retired even earlier and he has even lower expenses. I think he lives on $8,000 a year with his spouse or partner uh, providing a similar amount for for the basic expenses. And what both of these... What both of these bloggers have have pointed out and reminded is that we can think of retirement as the wrong as the wrong thing. Retirement isn't passive. Retirement means it means freedom. It means having options. It means doing the things you want, not having to do other things. Ian Castle is an investor who has retired from the corporate world, retired from the world of wearing suits and dealing bosses. And he wrote a very nice blog post that touched on this idea as well. This is what uh, Castle wrote. Quote, The first step to becoming a full-time investor is realizing money is about freedom, not consumption. The freedom you gain when you become a full-time investor is worth a hundred times the income you lose when you leave your job. The motivation isn't greed, but having the time to pursue your passion or purpose. You are never going to be great at something you do part-time. You need to see what you are fully capable of without restriction. It's this determination that allows you to look at the second set of questions above and say, yes, it's worth it, end quote. And the, uh, the, the post that Katzler that wrote is about, uh, first, how scary it can be to be uh, retired from the corporate world, to be writing your own check, to have hung your own shingle and eating off of what you're able to bring in rather than what someone's paying you. But Castle's pointing out the freedom, the optionality you get is really, really valuable. And this is what Mr. Money Mustache and Jacob at Early Retirement Extreme point out as well too, that retirement is not about stopping work, it's about doing work that you really want to do. And Mr. Money Mustache and Jacob both point out that you probably don't need as much as you think you do, especially if you can cut your expenses down. Both of them have interesting blogs that I was glad that I sort of refreshed my knowledge of this weekend. And if you're interested in financial independence or this idea of money being more important to time, those are two really good resources. Four. Another thing that struck me this week was the lack of personalization and how hard it is to get personalized advice. We just had our taxes done. And taxes are a pretty formulaic process where if you earn this much money, you pay this much on taxes. And if you have these deductions, you can deduct it from your taxable income and so forth. But to to get that sort of formula for life is is a lot harder and there's a lot of services that aren't being provided for people. For example, school seems to be really impersonalized. You have teachers and you have the students that they're serving, but to get The right reading level for books, or the right challenges for mathematics, or the right subjects for science seems to be fairly difficult with schools. The the curriculum is largely standardized. The textbooks are largely based on a few key states, in the United States at least, that dictate what goes into textbooks and and what doesn't. And that really surprises me that we're in this age of, of having data about people, yet it's hard to, to get it right in the schools. It's also hard to get it right for your health and your fitness and your nutrition. Tim Ferriss and Jocko Willink and, and Gary Taubes and some other people who are focused on diet have uh, different opinions, but they've largely coalesced around a few things. And, and what's interesting to note is that they've coalesced around things, but that might not be the right thing for you or for me. Why don't we have... Uh, customizable diets. Why can't I get a machine or a device that measures my blood sugar and that can tell me what I should be eating and what I shouldn't be eating? I mean, I have an $800 smartphone that's always in my pocket, but to test my blood glucose level and get dietary advices is still not possible. Medicine is another area where we don't seem to be personalized. Why does everyone take a 200 milligram ibuprofen tablet or one or two or three or four of those? This is something Mark Cuban stuck in my head uh, a few years ago and he thinks it's an area that's going to see a lot of changes. And we should note that this isn't easy. There's a lot of personalization that seems to be really hard. Netflix and Amazon, two companies that I probably rely on for more personalized advice than anyone else, Uh, Both only do a so-so job. Every once in a while, I'll scroll through Netflix, and there's not a lot on there that I necessarily want to watch. And same for Amazon. Amazon uses the largely, uh, if one customer bought this, another customer bought this uh, system for suggesting books and other materials. But overall, I don't find myself buying a lot of those things. I find myself searching out other things. One company that does seem to do a good job with this is Google versus for Google search and for YouTube. Those are both areas that seem to do better personalization advice, but there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of low-hanging fruit for people who want to provide those kinds of services.
1: Five.
0: This next clip is from the interview between Patrick O'Shaughnessy and Alex Mosed from the Invest Like the Best podcast on February 21st.
1: I read an interesting book I've referenced a few times um, called The Systems Bible, which is a fascinating book, and one of the things it talks about is that there never has been, there's no examples of a complex system that people have designed and dropped in and then it's worked. Right? Complex systems that work are invariably the result of a simple system that gets scaled up. And Peter Thiel talks a lot about this when it comes to entrepreneurship and venture capital, that to use your block analogy, you should effectively, for color, should have started on one New York City block and then moved out from there. Instead, they tried to do it all at once, and, and that was a lesson from your book as well, that in the platform business model, the early days, it just struck me that you have to be a hustler. Right. Um, you have to really focus on a niche. Uh, you have to really do right by the early adopters, mm-hmm. um, like Open Table did, mm-hmm. and that that's probably the best way to, mm-hmm. to build a platform early on, yeah. which is an incredibly hard thing to do.
0: Yeah, we like to say that actually, a lot of the things you're doing in the beginning don't scale at all. Right. Uh, they're actually super manual, and have no ability to handle, let alone tens of thousands of users or or certainly hundreds of thousands of users. The entire interview is really interesting about moats and businesses and economies of scale and the marketplace effects. If you like any of those things, or if you like this podcast, you'll definitely like Patrick's, uh, which is called Invest Like the Best. This idea of doing things that don't scale really connected with me because I'm taking a course from Complexity Explorer, which is offered by the Santa Fe Institute called Scal- Scaling and Fractals. It's a free course that you can search out for and enroll in, at least in February 2017. And it reminded me of that because a fractal is just a scaling geometric figure. You have one triangle and then you double it and then you have four triangles and then you double that and then you as, as your doubling grows, your figure grows, and fractals are, are kind of artwork, they're, they're similar to n- things in nature, like trees, for example, tend to be very similar, in fractal, similar to fractals, because they're self-similar. When you look at a tree, you have the trunk, and then you have off the trunk large branches, and off those medium branches, and off those small branches. Well, if you were to cut one of the large branches off the Tree and stand it up. You could stick it in the ground, and then that large branch becomes the trunk, and off that trunk are large branches, and medium branches, and small branches, and so forth, and so on. I think businesses are fractal like this, in that when you create a business, you want to set forth this foundation. You want to create a culture. If we go back to Danny Meyer's example from his book, you want to create this um, attitude of hospitality. You want to get your core competencies right. Because as you grow, as you expand, your business will be self-similar to whatever you've established. If you don't have good systems or processes or attitudes about customers or things that you come back to full stop and say, this is what our business is about, those other things like impurities will grow throughout your business, as your business scales, as it expands. In the same way that if you have a blemish in a fractal, as that doubles and copies and expands, that blemish is going to show up throughout the picture. I'm not sure how accurate this idea is, but the parallels really struck me, in part because I, I observed these things. I heard these different lessons from Patrick and then from the Fractals course on the same day. So there's, there's some of that going on. But I really like this idea. I'm going to further flesh out what it means to have something that's self-similar and how that can be applied to the business world. Like we open this podcast episode, this is a sort of connection that, you know, maybe there's something here and, and maybe there's not anything here. Maybe this will be garbage and it won't be it won't be worth a damn, but, but maybe it will. Maybe this is a great idea. Maybe this is something that can really open up a whole new world of ideas and possibilities and solutions. And that's why we learn. That's why we read books and listen to podcasts and watch YouTube lectures and so forth and so on is to really find things to find ideas and possibilities that will just blow our minds and and, and change our own worlds. Hopefully this podcast has done a little bit of that. Thanks for listening.